Well, let's go ahead and kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to be in your house today. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you bid us to be still and know that you are God. We're thankful, Father, that in this world one day you will be exalted and you will be glorified. We just pray that you would send your spirit today to work that miracle in our lives that your mighty and great and awesome character would be revealed in us. We pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get started this morning, I'd like to take a look at a couple of Bible verses that are very precious to me. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. You know, isn't that the way it is? See, when, when a baby during a sermon starts to talk and obviously is saying amen, you know, encouraging the, the preacher. See, now Judy's taking her out to try to help her to go to sleep, Walt. Yeah, but that throws a twist in it, Paul. Come on now. <laughs> uh, Zechariah 4, 6, and 7, the Bible says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. You know, Zerubbabel was the man that God used back in the days of um, the Babylonian captivity ending right around 535 B.C., and Zerubbabel and a host of people went back to the land of Israel from Babylon and they faced all kinds of trials, all kinds of disappointments, all kinds of mountains of difficulty that appeared insurmountable. And Zerubbabel was given this wonderful promise that no matter what mountain is standing in your way, go forward. No matter what trial you may be facing, go forward. No matter what pain you may have in your heart, go forward. Because God has promised not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, He will make that mountain, He will make that difficulty, He will make that trial into a plain. And where that mountain goes, we don't know. 
We don't know, but God is able to knock those mountains down. And you know, it's fascinating to me because the, the name of the person who gave that promise to Zerubbabel, in our Bibles it says the Lord of hosts. And in English we look at that and we say, well that, that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to me. Lord of hosts. Well, the Hebrew name right there that's used, it's the name Yahweh Sabaoth. It's the name that Martin Luther invoked during the Reformation when he wrote the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But you know what those words actually mean is, it's the commander of the armies of the universe. Now that's what Yahweh Sabaoth means. That's why Martin Luther invoked the name Lord of Hosts. Because the Reformation was facing mortal enemies. And so Luther prayed that Yahweh Sabaoth, or the Lord of Sabaoth, would come to their aid. So Lord of Hosts throughout the Old Testament, translated commander of the armies of the universe. And it was he who gave the promise to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And folk, we can invoke the Lord of hosts to knock down our mountains today, whatever they are, whatever they are. We just, we have a part. We need to submit ourselves so that He can do the work. Ben Franklin said, God helps those who do what? He couldn't have been further from the truth. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who realize they need help. That's who God helps. As Christ said in Mark chapter 2, He said, those that are whole don't need a physician. I don't remember the last time any one of us ever went to the doctor when we weren't sick. We don't do that. We don't do that. We only go when we recognize that we're ill. And folk, the Bible says that we are all ill. And we don't like to hear that, but that's just the cold hard facts. We are all ill. And Christ said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it's okay, it's okay to be honest with ourselves and to fall on our knees and say, Lord, I'm sick. I'm sick. I need your help. And when we do that, and when we hold on to the hand of Jesus Christ, the commander of the armies of the universe, he will make our mountains into plains.
Praise God this morning. <laughs> Praise God this morning, folk. That's the greatest news. It's the only good news that's left in this world. There isn't any other good news because it's a stinky, disgusting, and it's an awful place. Danny, I have three children, 17, 22, and 25. And I dedicated them a long time ago, Danny, to God. And I remember looking into their eyes and thinking, man, this is a terrible place to raise a child. And my children are not perfect because they came from two people that were not and are not perfect. But you know, as, I, as I've watched them grow up, I have seen how God has watched over and taken care of them. And I'm very thankful that He has. And that is the one hope that's the one hope that as a dad you can give to your child is to ever look to Christ for help. God sent a man. Let's take a look at it, sweetie. Church and State, Part 6. The words of Jesus Christ. So simple. And yet so rejected. When Christ was tempted, Luke chapter 20, verse 25, the Jews had come to Christ and said, you know, here's a, a coin. And they said, now if he says to render all our, our respect to Caesar, then we can go to the authorities and say, see, he's rejected God. But... If he says to give all your honor to God, then we can go to the Romans and say, he's, he's committing insurrection. He wants to overthrow the government. So the Jews thought they had Jesus. They thought they had him by the jugular vein. And so then Christ said to them in very simple terms, he said, give to Caesar, render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. Luke 20, verse 25. Christ declared that since they were living under the protection of the Roman power, they should render to that power the support it claimed, so long as this did not conflict with a higher duty. But while peaceably subject to the laws of the land, they should be at all times give their first allegiance to God. So Christ twisted what they said, and he said, government has its rightful sphere. Render honor to the government. Obey the laws of government. But Christ said, if that government ever decides that they can now step in between you and your worship of your maker, then you say no. Then it stops. And that's what Christ said in Luke 20, verse 25. He clearly identified our allegiance to the state, but he clearly identified our allegiance to God. 
But you know what, folk, in the Roman Empire at that time, the Roman emperors decided that it was okay for them to tell people how to worship and who to worship. They were sacral. That's what we call it. And because of that, there were many people in the first century that were eaten by lions. Many Christians, many followers of Jesus Christ who refused to let the government come in between them and God. And because they would not allow that, they were torn to pieces in the Colosseums of Rome. Next slide. Would that ever stop from the Roman emperors? It moved to Constantine in the 4th century. Augustine, the famous Roman Catholic theologian, encouraged the government to step in and tell Christians how they were to worship God. And then Charlemagne in around the 8th or 9th century. The popes came along and still more popes. And the battle raged. The popes and the kings, Henry VIII of England, James I who gave us our King James Bible, persecuted people who didn't go along with his view of God. Martin Luther, the great, awesome, powerful Protestant reformer. Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, the Puritans that founded this country. All of these people believed that government had a right to tell people how to worship God. Would there ever be an asylum of peace where one could worship God after the dictates of their own conscience? Would there ever be such a place? That should be T-H-E-R-E. -E. Would there ever be such a place like that in the world? For 20 centuries, folk, you can see one group after another telling other people how to worship God. Would that ever change? Next slide, sweetie. Throughout the history of this world, there have been repeated efforts by devil-possessed men to force conformity on the inhabitants of the world. This man, of course, was Constantine. This conformity has always demanded humanity to worship God in a particular way. Since Christ, it has been attempted by Constantine, Charlemagne, the Catholic Church, Protestant kings, and I put Protestant in quote marks, and queens, and even by Calvinistic Puritans in America. Would it ever stop, folks? Would it ever stop? Next slide, sweetie. Well, we know in the Star Spangled Banner, at the end of it, it says, And the land of the free and the home of the brave. Is that true? Is it the land of the free? When the Star Spangled Banner was first sung, it was. It was the land of the free. Bible prophecy said that there would be the rise of a power down at the end of time. 
somewhere around 1798, a power would rise up that would have two horns like a lamb and would end up speaking as a dragon. But it would start off with Christ-like principles of government. The Constitution of the United States says that Congress shall make no law prohibiting or encouraging an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Where did that come from? Where did it come from? It didn't come from the Puritans and the Pilgrims. The Star-Spangled Banner sings a different song. It's a song of freedom, of diversity, and a place to worship God as one chooses. Where did all this come from? It didn't come from the Puritans. To whom do we owe these treasures that have blessed this land? This one man, this one man right here back in the 17th century, dared dared to believe the words of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 20. This one man dared to follow what God said. This one man said, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we never join them together. What was this man's name? Roger Williams. Roger Williams. Next slide, sweetie. In the book, Great Controversy, pages 293 and 294, it says 11 years after the planting of the first colony, that would have been around 1620, Roger Williams came to the New World. He came right about 1631. Like the early pilgrims, he came to enjoy religious freedom. But unlike them, he saw what so few in his time had yet seen, that this freedom was the inalienable right of all, whatever might be their creed. He was an earnest seeker for truth, with John Robinson holding it impossible that all the light from God's word had yet been received. Roger Williams was the first person in modern Christendom to establish civil government on the doctrine of the liberty of conscience, the equality of opinions before the law. That man was a radical. This man was unlike anybody who had lived for centuries. He declared it to be the duty of the magistrate to restrain crime, but never to control the conscience. The public or the magistrates may decide, he said, what is due from man to man. But when they attempt to prescribe a man's duties to God, they are out of place and there can be no safety. For it is clear that if the magistrates has the power he may decree one set of opinions or beliefs today and another tomorrow, as has been done in England by different kings and queens and by different popes and councils in the Roman church, so that belief would become a heap of confusion. 
Now think for just a minute, folks. In England in the 16th century, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, from 1553 to 1558, the woman who led England, her name was Bloody Mary. Okay, that was her name. Mary was her name. Okay, she came to be known as Bloody Mary because she persecuted Protestants. Okay, in 1558 to 1603, the woman who came into power in England was her half-sister, Queen Elizabeth. And you know what Queen Elizabeth did? She began to drive out Catholics. So, folk, in England, it was one time it's Catholic, one time it's Protestant. One time it's Catholic, one time it's Protestant. England was like a ping-pong ball through the 16th and 17th centuries. And that was the confusion that Roger Williams grew up in. Next slide. Williams knew there had to be something better. But how did Roger Williams arrive at the idea that the church and the state remain completely separate. Where did he get this idea? Roger Williams was born in England around 1603 when King James, the man who led out in the King James translation, when he came to power in England, that's when Roger Williams was born. Roger Williams' parents were not pleased when he became a Christian, nor were they happy when he turned away from the Church of England because he believed it was too corrupt. Around 1627, Roger Williams became a Puritan. Now, folk, it was the Puritans who had come to America and had demanded that everybody worship as they did. So how did Roger Williams come up with this new idea? Well, as a teenager, Roger Williams worked for Edward Coke. This is Edward Coke over here. He was the most famous lawyer. A lot of historians call him a jurist. That doesn't mean he served on a jury. It just simply means he was a lawyer. He was the most famous lawyer in 17th century England. Coke, like few before him, supported individual liberty against arbitrary government and sought to ensure that the king's authority was circumscribed by law. Edward Coke was a rebel too. Because what he was saying was, government cannot take away individual freedom. Government and kings are not above the law. Folk, that was absolutely radical. Now, for you and me in the United States today, we say, well, that's, that's what kind of government we have now, or for a little longer. But folk, in the 17th century, this man, Edward Coke, was a radical, and so was Roger Williams. This was unheard of in the annals of human history. Next slide. Edward Coke had a tremendous influence over Roger Williams. 
And it wasn't just Edward Koch, but Roger Williams was also deeply affected by seeing firsthand the martyrdom of people in England dying for their faith. From the book by Charles Longacre called Roger Williams, His Life, Work, and Ideals, page 8, Longacre says this, His London home, for Roger Williams, was near Newgate Prison and only a short distance from Smithfield Plaza, where so many of the so-called heretics were burned at the stake or hung by the neck until they were dead. These executions were frequent in the days of young Roger Williams. His sympathies were stirred as he witnessed these executions for conscience sake, and he developed a spirit of independent inquiry and a feeling of abhorrence against religious persecution. This was the answer in Roger Williams's England if somebody didn't agree with the king. This was the answer if somebody didn't go along with how the king interpreted the Bible. They were killed. They were burned at the stake. Now, folk, lest we think that we're studying a history lesson today, as we watch in the United States today, greater and greater power resting in the hands of a few people. As we see the grand attempt to make America a Christian nation, which it never was nor ever should be. Folk, this is going to have a repeat in this country. Because there is a greater and greater demand in this country today for uniformity. For everybody to agree and to see things the same way. Back in November, right after the election, I had the opportunity to be on a, radio, a, a talk program where Newt Gingrich, a man who is thinking about running for the presidency in 2012, and a man named David Barton, who is a historian who claims that our nation originally was Christian, and that what America needs to do is get back to its Christian roots. These men discussed the election in last November and said what happened in November is paving the way for our nation to become Christian again. And folk, what that simply means is, is when America becomes Christian again, this will be the result. This is where our nation is heading today. Next slide, sweetie. Roger Williams, right around 1629, 1630, as a young pastor, he was given a call from the Puritans and John Winthrop 
who lived in Boston. And they invited Roger Williams to come to America to be a pastor. Well, the kind of attitude that Roger Williams met when he came into Boston can best be summed up in the words of a Puritan pastor. Now listen carefully to these words. The Puritan pastor was asked, are you the parson or the pastor who serves here in the United States? The pastor replied, I am, sir, the parson who rules here. Not who serves, who rules. That's called a theocracy. That's where people think that they, under God, are calling the shots. That was the attitude that Roger Williams beheld when he came to America in 1631. Roger Williams did not remain in Boston for very long. Because as soon as he got to Boston, Roger Williams began to preach. The church and the state are to be forever separate. What the state can do is to prosecute people who have broken the second table of the law of God. Because that enjoins man's duty to man. But Roger Williams said, no government can ever touch the first table of the law that tells how a person is to worship their maker. Next slide. Welcome to America. Uniformity was maintained by the civil authorities whose magistrates regarded themselves as responsible for enforcing the first as well as the second table of the Decalogue. The life and worship of the colony was controlled by legislation and no deviation was permitted. Blasphemy and swearing were punished and a rigid observance of the Sunday Sabbath was required of all, non-members as well as members, in the hope that by regular attendance the non-members would hear and respond to the call of God. Those who didn't end up in church would be fined. They could be thrown into prison and ultimately be killed. Now that's what the Puritans brought to America. And that's what Roger Williams beheld when he got here. Next slide, sweetie. Roger Williams declared that the state could legitimately concern itself only with matters of civil order but not religious belief. The state had no business in trying to enforce the first table of the Ten Commandments. Those first commandments that dealt with the relationship between God and people. The state must confine itself to the commandments that dealt with the relations between people. Murder, theft, adultery, lying, honoring parents, and so forth. Roger Williams regarded any effort by the state to dictate religion or promote any particular religious idea or practice uh, 
to be forced worship. And he colorfully declared that forced worship stinks in the nostrils of God. If somebody is forced to worship God, and they in their heart don't want to, what will they be? They'll be a hypocrite. That's all forced worship can ever create, is a hypocrite. Because if worshiping God is not in here, if it's not what we want here, we're being hypocritical. So Roger Williams said, forcing people to worship a certain way stinks. He would write that he saw no warrant in the New Testament to use the sword to promote religious belief. He said that Constantine had been a worse enemy to true Christianity than Nero because Constantine's support had corrupted Christianity and led to the death of the Christian church. In the strongest language, he described the attempt to compel belief to be the rape of the soul. He spoke of the oceans of blood shed as a result of trying to command conformity. This has been the greatest crime in the history of humanity because when we try to force people to worship God the way we think, the end result has always been the blood of those who dissent. Next slide. Roger Williams was the first to use the phrase, the wall of separation, to describe the relationship of the church and the state. He called for a high wall of separation between the garden of Christ, and that's the church, and the wilderness of the world, that's the state. This idea is one of the foundations of the religion clauses in the United States Constitution and the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. You know, folk, to help us understand how far America has fallen from where Roger Williams left it in the 17th century, a Supreme Court Justice, the Chief Justice of the United States, a man named William Rehnquist, Back in the 1990s, this would have been over 20 years ago, stated that the wall of separation between the church and the state is a metaphor based on bad history. And then he said, it must be abandoned. And folk, that didn't come from some some person that didn't know this was the Chief Justice of the United States. He said this wall must be abandoned. Next slide. Roger Williams, as he tackled the Puritans of Boston and then Salem, Roger Williams could not be tolerated. He could not be tolerated. This man, according to the Puritans in Boston, Roger Williams was crazy. He was a radical. 
He was a nut. Roger Williams' ideas would permeate the colonies, the Puritans said. This could not, would not be. It was determined that he would be sent back to England. Knowing this, Roger Williams and a few friends left Salem in the dead of winter in 1635. And for 14 weeks, that's over three months, three months in New England winter, two, three, four, five feet of snow on the ground, everything in the wilderness is dead, it's freezing cold. Roger Williams loved liberty so much he separated from his wife and children and made his way into the New England winter. That's how much he loved liberty. Roger Williams didn't know where his next meal was going to come. They didn't have Publix or Winn-Dixie or Albertsons. Stop and shop. They didn't have those in the New England wilderness, folk. He had no idea where he was going to eat, if he was even going to survive. But that's how important religious and civil liberty was to that man. Williams and his friends ended up in the area of Narragansett Bay and purchased land from the Indians that lived there. Today, this area is known as Rhode Island. Next slide. You can see on this map, here's Salem, here's Boston, Salem and Boston. Roger Williams left Salem in the winter of 1635, made his way, must have had to have gone around Boston, but made his way down here to this area. And it was here that Roger Williams met the Indians of Narragansett Bay and purchased this land from those Indians. Roger Williams' grand experiment in Rhode Island gave freedom, civil and religious, to all people. Didn't matter what you believed. Didn't matter if what day of the week you went to church on. Didn't matter if you didn't go to church at all. Everybody had that right. Everybody. Other colonies like Pennsylvania, it was in Pennsylvania where the Quakers settled with William Penn, and Catholics in Maryland. They had granted liberty in their charters but it was never for everyone. In Catholic Maryland, they had what they called the Acts of Toleration. Those Acts of Toleration were good if you were a Roman Catholic. If you weren't, then you were not tolerated. Williams in Rhode Island, right here, declared these freedoms to be inalienable rights of all people. People flocked to his territory. Amazingly, the area was purchased from the Narragansett Indians. 
the great principles of civil and religious liberty found their home in Indian lands rather than in the lands of the white Europeans. Now isn't that something? See, the white Europeans controlled up here. Boston and Salem and New England. That's where the white Europeans were. But in order to give America civil and religious liberty, Roger Williams couldn't do it here with the white Europeans. He had to go down amongst the Narragansett Indians in Rhode Island. And it was in this cradle where civil and re religious liberty was born. Next slide. Savage Christians or Christian savages? As Rhode Island grew, the leaders of Massachusetts Bay, where Roger Williams had been forced to flee, they began to fear because Rhode Island was becoming powerful. Because people were flocking to Rhode Island. And so the men of Massachusetts Bay became afraid that Roger Williams would revenge himself for their cruel treatment of him. And they invited him to join his colony. And Roger Williams stated these words. He said, I feel safer down here among the Christian savages along Narragansett Bay than I do among the savage Christians of Massachusetts Bay Colony. So Roger Williams felt much safer with the Christian savages, the Narragansett tribes, than he did with the savage Christians in Boston. I think we have to ask ourselves, which one are we? Are we a Christian savage? Or are we a savage Christian? Next slide. From this little area of Rhode Island, can almost not even see it on this map. You've got all the colonies from Maine down to Florida, all the east, eastern part of the United States, and right here you've got this little tiny speck called Rhode Island. One of the grounds of people, one of the groups, excuse me, of people that found asylum in Rhode Island were the Anabaptists. These were the radicals of Europe that we have studied over the last few weeks. William's message was their message. The Baptists carried that message to Virginia, came all the way down here. They spread the message all into New England, and they came over here and down here. And the Baptists suffered much persecution. Thomas Jefferson, a lawyer in Virginia, and another lawyer in Virginia by the name of James Madison became their attorneys and their defenders and champions of their cause for the disestablishment of religion. 
The ideas of Roger Williams found a rebirth in these two American champions of civil and religious liberty. Now notice here, folks, this is in a book by Longacre, Roger Williams, his life and work. It does not say here that Jefferson and Madison were American champions of Christianity because they were not Christians. They were not followers of Christ. They were deists. And a deist believed that God created the world and then he left it for mankind to do whatever he wanted to do. That's what Jefferson and Madison believed. They were deists. But through these Baptists who were persecuted in Virginia for their religious beliefs, Jefferson and Madison understood immediately that if the church and state were not separate in America, America would become a bloodbath just like Europe had been. So these two American champions of civil and religious liberty, Thomas Jefferson gave expression to them in the Declaration of Independence and James Madison in the Constitution of the United States. Next slide. The Apostle of Liberty. The Apostle of Soul Liberty was Roger Williams. Roger Williams was the trailblazer for the men who framed the American Constitution. He made the trail which they completed and beautified as the pathway to freedom. We walk unfettered today, unhindered along this royal road. He laid the foundation for the temple of freedom which they completed and glorified. We dwell within its stately halls. He sowed the seed of liberty which brought forth a bountiful harvest. We enjoy its multiplied blessings. This man, by following the words of Jesus Christ, has made this nation what it is today. We enjoy the freedoms that we have today. The freedom to worship God according to our own conscience. And freedom's inalienable rights before the law. Because this man chose to follow the principles that Christ laid down in Luke chapter 20. Next slide. Two horns like a lamb. The Christ-like principles of government that the second beast of Revelation 13 would have are the result of Williams following what Christ said. In Great Controversy, page 295, it says, the fundamental principle of Roger Williams' colony was that every man should have liberty to worship God according to the light of his own conscience. His little state, Rhode Island, became the asylum of the oppressed and it increased and prospered until its foundation principle, civil and religious liberty, became the cornerstones of the American Republic. In that grand old document which our forefathers set forth as their Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, they declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why is America the great melting pot of the world? Why is it that people come from Europe and the Far East and from Central and South America? Why do they come to this land? Why? It's because of these grand principles. These grand principles that have made this country great. And it's for these two principles that all the greatness of this land owes. It's all owed to these things. The Constitution guarantees rights of conscience. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office of public trust under the United States. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The framers of the Constitution recognize the eternal principle that man's relation with his God is above human legislation, and his rights of conscience are inalienable. Next slide. Did everything change when Roger Williams and the Constitution were written? Was the mindset that religious people want to force others to believe as they do? Did that die? No. It has continued on, folk, since the very, before, before the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Here are just a few examples. In 1810, war raged over postmasters working on Sunday. 1815, chains were placed across postal roads in Philadelphia to stop postmasters from carrying mail on Sunday. In 1830, Sunday law legislation was agitated in America. 1856, a judge defends Sunday laws in Arkansas. 1888, a senator by the name of Blair sponsored a Lord's Day measure. Folk, it's been going on throughout American history. Before the War of 1812, during the time of Ellen White and William Miller, the rise of Seventh-day Adventism, it's always gone on throughout American history. Some people that have sought to defend the principles in our Constitution, a man named Richard Johnson in the 1820s declared that no religion should be upheld by government. William Lloyd Garrison, a famous abolitionist in the 1840s, declared government stay out of all religious discussions. The grandson of Davy Crockett, a man named R.N. Crockett in the 1880s, pleaded for religious liberty in the United States. And Alonzo T. Jones in the late 1880s into the early 1890s, 
locked horns with Senator Blair over his Lord's Day measure. Next slide. And so here we are today in the United States in an independent Seventh-day Adventist church. And so how did Seventh-day Adventists, how did that rise? How was it that there would be people that would keep the seventh day of the week? Where did it come from in America? Well, the Sabbatarian Anabaptists of Europe spread the truth throughout the continent. When persecuted, they fled to England and then to the New World. They found asylum in Rhode Island and spread the truth from there. They influenced Madison and Jefferson. It was the Anabaptists. The Lutherans couldn't do it. To keep the church and state separate? The Lutherans tried to keep it together. The Calvinists couldn't do it. But the Anabaptists were the only ones who believed the church and state stays apart. The Anabaptists influenced Madison and Jefferson in the 19th century. It was a Sabbatarian Anabaptist named Rachel Oakes Preston, right there, who spoke to the Wheeler and Farnsworth families. These then spoke with Joseph Bates, who shared with James and Ellen White. Our ancestry comes from the radical Sabbatarian Anabaptists of the Reformation era. That's where it came from, folk. That's where it came from. We still have a job to do. To do all that we can to maintain the separation of the church and the state. To ever stand for civil and religious liberty. Just as Roger Williams did. That's not that we're to engage in political activities. Far from it. Our job is to preach the three angels' messages. But we must never forget, we must never forget to ever stand up when the church and state is being joined together. And it's happening, folk, right before our eyes. I just pray that God will give us the grace and strength to ever defend the great principles for which Roger Williams and his master, Jesus Christ, for the principles for which they stood. Let's kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you today that you've always had people and you've always had a place. You raised up Roger Williams. You raised up Rhode Island. Thank you that Roger Williams followed what Jesus said. I just pray, Father, that no matter what comes in this world, no matter what forces come, that we would ever stand for those grand principles of civil and religious liberty. 
Father, strengthen us to never allow anyone to ever tell us how to worship or when to worship you. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.